Welcome to Centennial College's Love in the Time of Corona podcast, the podcast that provides intersectional and multi-community perspectives on love, intimacy, and connection during the global pandemic. In this second episode, panelists from Centennial College and Humber College share how they define love and intimacy and explore strategies to maintain connection as the coronavirus lasts for the foreseeable future. Well, welcome everyone to our event called Love in the Time of Corona. Um, we're excited to uh, facilitate this dialogue with, with our group of panelists and attendees today. Um, and this being the second into event of what's evolving into a series uh, of discussions about navigating sort of connection, intimacy, um, and, and finding ways to foster hu human connection during all, all the ch challenges that come with the pandemic. And we're really excited to be able to bring uh, a diverse group of speakers and really talk about this dialogue in a way that bridges multiple different, uh, you know, sort of faith practices, community practices, identities, and relationship structures in the ways that we find and foster human connection during these times. So as we dive in, we'll just share a little bit of context about how, how this event came to be um, and sort of what prompted our, our thinking that this was a need for, for more discussion and more opportunity to connect and learn from each other. As many of you will remember back in March when we first moved into the different impacts to, to the public health pandemic, particularly relating to sort of uncertainty, isolation, loss of a number of our coping mechanisms, in, including the loss of sort of human connection and, and human intimacy. Um, we sort of recognize that this element that there was limited public health guidance on how we might go about meeting intimacy and connection needs. And some of what was going out there wasn't all that inclusive of sort of diverse communities and diverse ways, ways of connecting. So, so with recognizing that sort of gap in some of the advice we were getting and seeing some kind of good harm reduction resources coming out of groups like New York Public Health, talking about um, safe sex during a pandemic. And I'm sure we can all think of the, the interesting recommendations that came out of BC that I can imagine being fun and great for some populations, but maybe not, not in line with everyone's interests. I, I am talking about the glory hole recommendation article. Um, first cheeky comment of the event. Um, we, we, we thought it was important to really broaden the ways we talk about human connection, it, of course, including, um, you know, thinking about sex and physical connection, but also other forms of human intimacy community connection, um, and sort of how we, we're all navigating this for, for, from those different perspectives. So, so that's sort of why we're here today, and we're, we're excited to extend to the first conversation we had back in June. So as we dive into the discussion, we really want to kind of enter the space with sort of humility and realizing that we're each entering the conversation with different aspects of our identities, the ways we connect, the ways we engage in relationship and intimacy. And in doing that, we'll be starting off with um, uh, Amita and I, and then our panelists uh, share, sharing their social locations and, and sort of the worldview and perspective they, they bring to this issue, just so that you have the chance to get to know us a little bit better. And we're hoping that the conversation will be able to model and bring in uh, some vulnerability in the conversation. And we, we thought that doing this first was an important way to um, let you get to know us and to model some of that vulnerability. So in terms of myself, my name is Rick Ezekiel. I am the Director of Equitable Learning, Health and Wellness at Centennial College. 
In terms of some of my identities and connection to the topic today, um, I identify as a queer, specifically gay, cisgender male. Um, and I have white skin and of um, settler ancestry. I grew up in a very loving, working class family where, where my parents didn't have access to, to complete high school or attend post-secondary education. And they come from very large extended family backgrounds. And in those extended family backgrounds, we had sort of high rates of experiences of mental illness, of, of experiences with substance abuse, um, and, and some experiences of historic and contemporary trauma. Um, and that sort of played out in lots of ways in, in my own experiences as a kid that have informed the ways I connect with others and sort of build identity and engage with intimacy. So I think for me, it, it, growing up in an environment, both home and school environment, where there is rampant homophobia and where it really kind of modeled a lack of safety to be authentic and to kind of share emotions and desire for connection in the ways that would have actually felt good for me at that time, um, really meant that that you know, building good intimacy and authentic connection and being able to engage in vulnerability had to start with building self-worth and forging identity um, and getting a bit comfortable with vulnerability and realizing that there were safe places to be vulnerable and, and let my own guard down with other people and other humans in the context of family, friendships, partnerships, etc. In terms of my own relationship styles, uh, I, I practiced multiple relationship structures and styles over the years, including monogamy, uh, and most recently sort of critical non-hierarchical polyamory where, where um, I guess before the pandemic was net navigating multiple intimate connections. And of course, uh, the pandemic has shifted ways of engaging in those types of relationships. So, so meaning kind of finding creative ways to connect with folks who have been sort of sustained or ongoing partners. So with that, I'll pass it over to Amita to share some more about her and, and more introductions of the panel and, and how we're gonna structure things. Thanks, Mary. Um, hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, my name is Amita Singh. I, I identify as a cisgender, heterosexual woman of color. Um, I am currently living on the lands of the Haudenosaunee and the Nisqaqats. Um, during COVID, I have been navigating isolation with my husband, uh, trying to stay as safe as possible um, because his work is an essential service and he works outside of the home. At Centennial, I am a counselor with the Center for Accessible Learning and Counseling Services, or CELTS, um, as well as the Sexual Violence Coordinator for the college. So in terms of housekeeping items, before we get uh, too far into the meat of things, uh, the Q&A is open for your questions for the panel, uh, so please do join in. Um, and you can also use our Padlet, um, which I will link in our chat uh, for learnings that you, you are taking away from the discussion as it goes on. So, um, so as you all know, today's forum is about navigating love and intimacy. During this time, we're connecting with others and even with ourselves um, has proven especially challenging. Um, and our panel will be engaging in brave sharing of intimate stories of how they are navigating this time. So we ask that we treat this forum as confidential as confidentially as possible, uh, taking the learnings but keeping any personal details of what's discussed to yourselves. 
And speaking of a brave space, I would like to share with you this piece by Mickey Scott Bay Jones, uh, who's a justice doula uh, based out of Nashville, Tennessee. Um, and you can find her on Twitter at I am Mickey Jones, and I can also post that for you if you're interested. So her piece is titled An Invitation to Brave Space, and it reads, <clears throat> together we will create a brave space because there is no such thing as a safe space. We exist in the real world. We all carry scars and we have all caused wounds. In this space, we seek to turn down the volume of the outside world we amplify voices that fight to be heard elsewhere. We call each other to more truth and love. We have the right to start somewhere and to continue to grow. We have the responsibility to examine what we think we know. We will not be perfect. This space will not be perfect. It will not always be what we wish it to be, but it will be our brave space together, and we will work on it side by side. And with that, I'd like to turn it over to our first speaker, Sean Kinsley. Okay, I'm unmuted. Dance everyone, Mikazi Dodem, Wazakone, Mashki Ki, Nadishnikas, Nadia, Nathia, Atimsmak, Gay Gay Nakawe Endau, Takaranto, Natonji, Nogojawana, Donjaba. So I'm uh, Sean Kinsella, director of the 8th Fire for Centennial College. Um, what I just uh, said in, in Anishinaabe um, Moen, uh, which is one of the, the languages that I am learning, uh, is that um, my one of the spirit names that I, that I know by or go by um, is the medicine that light brings. Um, I told you that I am uh, several different, um, uh, although, although I have my Cree colleagues tell me to stop doing this, uh, flavors of Cree. Uh, so I'm from uh, the people who are uh, Woods, Woods Cree, Plains Cree, and then also up around James Bay. Um, I'm also um, Plains Ojibwe, uh, and I uh, told you that I'm Bald Eagle Clan um, uh, with, uh, under the uh, Bodoanami, uh, Jumanjumak, Anishinaabe people. Um, so I think what I wanted to start by uh, saying, so I'll get, I'll get to my social locations in a little bit, um, but I wanted to start by acknowledging um, the, the different lands that all of us may be coming from. And I'm gonna uh, take that a little bit differently and bend it a little bit. So often it is a, it is a good practice for folks to engage in land acknowledgements uh, when we're gathering together. But what I wanna sort of recognize is that what I just said is a land acknowledgement. So um, when I am um, speaking in, in my language and introducing myself to all of you, I'm also introducing myself to the territories and the ancestors that you are all bringing with you at the same time. And so um, what I would encourage a lot of folks to do, um, and Centennial as an example, has a land acknowledgement that was gifted to them by a number of Indigenous nations uh, that have collaborated. So uh, folks often ask me like, well, can I change it or can I adjust it? And my, my answer to that is no, um, because what's in that land acknowledgement uh, is specifically um, gifted to, to the institution um, by knowledge keepers and community folks and had a lot of consultation. What I will also make the, the subtle argument for, though, is the land acknowledgement is not for me. Uh, 
Uh, so as an indigenous person, the way I'm introducing myself is a land acknowledgement. And I want to recognize that uh, currently where I'm sitting um, is in the, uh, the territory of the Mississaugas. Uh, Centennial College also uh, sits on the territory of Mississaugas, um, which are part of the Anishinaabe confederacies. And that would be the name that, uh, that they had before Mississauga. Um, because Mississauga is based on the place that they, that they uh, a river up north that they uh, came to and from based on their hunting lands. I also want to recognize that uh, this is also a territory that the Haudenosaunee people, so I'm pretty, pretty close to Tyndanega, uh, as well as um, a number of communities that are here, uh, that these are folks who have cared for this, this territory and this land uh, since time immemorial. Um, I also want to acknowledge uh, that currently um, it is a time and a place where we all gather together um, because of, uh, because of colonization. Um, but within that, that there's an opportunity for us to all sit and learn from one another during this time. And so I'm grateful for that opportunity. And I'm grateful to see people from around the world and from all different continents represented on the call, uh, in addition to those who may be joining us as well. And, and acknowledging that um, when we talk about treaties, uh, and this will go, go into what I'm going to talk about a little bit later. Um, but when we talk about treaties, we're also talking about what everyone's responsibilities are, uh, both um, as people who may be indigenous to these territories, or in my case, a guest. Um, so as I said, I'm, I'm Plains and Woods Cree. Uh, this at one time would have been, uh, Anish this is Anishinaabe territory and my people are part of the Anishinaabe Confederacy, uh, but we, we go back a little bit. So we were from around the Great Lakes, especially the, the, um, the Nakaway were, were from Lake of the Woods typically, uh, and then sort of went up to St. Marie and onto the Plains. Um, but it's been a little while since we inhabited this area uh, as we went for a long walk um, that has lasted a couple hundred years. Um, and so I want to acknowledge that, um, that those are the people that I come from and to speak to, to, those, uh, to those ones and also recognize that those experiences and the people that I'm speaking from is both from my own perspective as well as, uh, as, as that. Um, I also um, identify as someone who uh, is what we would call in the language Ayagüeo, uh, which translates to um, one who sort of is between uh, this notion of gender. Um, Sometimes in the English translation, I, I will talk to myself, talk about myself as being two spirit, although that doesn't work when you translate it back into the language, um, because in the language we have one spirit, um, at least as I was taught as an Anishinaabe person. But uh, I have a little on my like Facebook background, um, <laughs> I have a little, uh, a little sort of, um, uh, I don't know if folks are into Futurama, but there's like a little, there's a part where one character explains uh, about how, um, because uh, Nibbler is the character and his true name is asked. And his sort of response to one of the main characters is, you know, it would take me like basically forever to explain to you um, the, the sort of pieces of my name uh, because it's infinitely complex and full of galaxies. And so I sort of think of my gender that way and that like I say two-spirit, but like it's because to translate what we actually mean by when we talk about how we introduce ourselves um, into English, uh, it, you know, would be, would be mildly insulting probably to, the, to those. English is a very limited language um, and it's a very gendered language. And so when we're talking about those things and bringing things into those, you know, those are, are things we have to consider and be aware of. Um, so uh, so I, I, I fall between those. I told you what my clan is. And, I, and so those are also the people that I'm accountable to and responsible to is the, the Bald Eagle clan, um, which is a leadership clan amongst the Anishinaabe people. Um, I'm also someone who engages in lots of different relationships and I'll save uh, that piece for, uh, for later on when I, when I have a little bit of time to, to speak about that. Uh, but just recognizing that uh, when we talk about relationships and setting a context for me, we're talking about not just um, 
the relationships we have with other humans, but we're also talking about the relationships we have with uh, the mineral world, the plant world, the animal world, and those those elder siblings uh, uh, that we talk about in that way that um, that we are uh, part of a long continuum of history as sort of like what we would call modern modern day humans, um, and we have stories that trace all the way back to to. Uh, for billions of years um, around how we came to be here. And so, you know, those are the contexts of which I think about when we talk about this idea of, of um, isolation and community and connection, uh, that to set the stage uh, around that, that um, we are also um, acknowledging the relationship we have with the entire human family. So everyone that's that's present today, uh, all of our ancestors, as well as uh, all the legacy of the, the Otsokon and Oxokonic, which is our, our legends and beings that live in our legends, um, that also are part of, of these narratives and stories too. So uh, I wanted to acknowledge those things before I handed it off. And then when we, when we get to my little part, I'll talk a little bit more about how that gets actualized and practically sort of um, happens in for me and, and in my community. Um, but, uh, but I wanted to just take a few minutes there to, for myself, set the stage and tell you a little bit about, about who I am uh, in a traditional way. So I'll, I'll sort of stop there and say Egozi, which is sort of, that's it, that's all, um, and, uh, and pass it along. Thanks, Sean. Hi, everyone. I am Dr. Sylvia Daddario, and I use she, her pronouns. I am the Manager of Equity and Inclusion Programs at the Center for Global Citizenship, Education, and Inclusion at Centennial College. I identify as a questioning cisgender woman in a monogamous long-term relationship. I'm a mom of two, and I've found that navigating connection as a parent and also as a partner during COVID has been quite challenging. Myself and my family are settlers on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe. I grew up in what is called Markham in Ontario in an immigrant household, and my experiences with connection were marked by feelings of being out of place. We spoke a different language growing up at home, which made it difficult to understand where I belonged. I had a heightened sense of dislocation, not feeling a sense of belonging here or in an imagined homeland. I developed as a person within the strict confines of sexism and patriarchy as a normalized part of my culture. And I am a survivor of gender-based violence. And so I value and practice trauma-informed care in all that I do. I approach the work that I do and the life that I lead with an acute sense that our bodies have been socialized to support massive systems of oppression. This includes the way that we connect with ourselves, connect with others, the way that we honor our bodies, and ultimately how we come to understand the degree to which love is abundant across a variety of facets in life. And so I'm passionate about the work that it takes to acknowledge, heal those deep programmed layers within us that may contribute to the everyday and institutionalized forms of oppression for all folks. As an, as an intersectional feminist, I know that my equity work includes working towards liberating all bodies, all forms of oppression, and recognizing and respecting the intersecting ways that our experiences play out. So I look forward to talking a little bit more about that, but for now, I will pass it off to Monique. Thank you so much, Sylvia. Hi, everyone. My name is Monique Chambers, and I use uh, she, her pronouns. I'm the coordinator for student diversity and inclusion initiatives at the BASE program at Humber College. 
Um, I spend most of my days uh, empowering Black students to create programming in a way that is reflective of our own identity um, so that their counterparts, my counterparts, that we feel like we too belong at the college. Uh, principles of equity, diversity, and inclusion, uh, fostering places and feelings of belonging has always been important to me. It's, I feel like the core of who I am um, because I know what it's like to not feel like I belong. I think I've struggled with that feeling for uh, a long, long time. I was born in Winnipeg, Manitoba. My parents are from Jamaica, but I was born in Winnipeg, Manitoba, um, a black girl in a very white province. <laughs> and so I think that in itself speaks for, or it speaks for itself. Um, I was raised in a very white populated area. When we moved to Ontario, I was raised actually in Curtis, um, Oshawa, and even Bowmanville. I went to junior high. Um, and then eventually we moved close to Toronto. We moved to Pickering. So right now I currently reside in Ajax, Ontario, which is situated on the land of Hodino, Suniga, Anishinaabe, and Mississaugas. I mention this because although I spend countless hours speaking and teaching on oppression, countless hours, um, often from the place as the oppressed, like operating from this place of being oppressed, um, I want to acknowledge that I am a settler on this land. I want to acknowledge that I'm a part of a system that systematically oppresses, literally dehumanizes, um, oftentimes the original inhabitants of this land. And I do not believe that it's lawful. I believe it's unfair and unjust how this system that I am often complicit in um, treats different groups of people. And so I do my best all the time to learn, unlearn, and act in a way um, that advocates for all people. And acknowledging my positionality, um, I'm a part of a group called the those who are oppressed at times. And yet at the same time, I inhabit like, like this unique dichotomy. It's like I'm part of the group that's oppressed, but yet part of the group that's um, an oppressor. And so I actually exist in the space of duality and that can cause one to question themselves and their actions. And this is what I often do. Um, it can cause one to feel like they don't quite fit in or they don't quite belong. And so these feelings really resonate with me. Growing up black, but not being black enough for my black friends. Growing up black, but then being too black for my white friends had me literally spinning in circles. And so that insecurity moved me um, or moved beyond my social arenas and it actually spilled into my academics. And so I did horribly in high school. I didn't have many friends because I was so insecure about who I was as a person. Um, and then I, I didn't do, do well academically as well. I didn't start doing better actually until about third year of university when I started to see myself represented in the curriculum. And then once I went to grad school, it was a game changer because I literally saw people who looked like me who were teaching the curriculum that I could see myself in. And so that was really powerful for me. Um, so again, I go back to creating places where um, all people feel like they belong is really important to me. Um, and so this is why equity and inclusion um, is so important to who I am and what I do. And so whether or not I'm working in the social services, because I did that for like 20 years, um, and then, or if I'm counseling or from working in education, my aim has always been 
and will always be to foster feelings of belonging for all people. That being said, I'm happily married to a wonderful man and I'm a stepmother to two wonderful teenage boys. Um, I believe firmly in work-life balance, but my husband, who is a pastor, is still grasping what this actually means. Um, and so uh, spirituality is really important for, um, really important to me, it's paramount. It governs how I see and operate in the world. Um, so this time at home has actually given me more time to engage in my creator. And in that engagement, I'm learning more about me. It's encouraged me to ask questions like, who are you? Who are you called to be, Monique? And how are you expressing the calling in that calling in this earth? I think when so much has been taken away, that it forces us to focus on intangible things, things that we can't really touch, um, things that really actually matter, things like love and connection. COVID-19 has definitely added some unique dynamics to our home um, and to our marriage uh, that we've had to navigate, like um, a lot of people. But overall, I would say that for me, love has always been an action word. And I'll talk about this a little bit more um, later on. Um, regardless of whether or not, you know, we're separated by time or space or even geography, you know, you might have to get a little creative. But the question is, you know, for me, how are you expressing love? And to what end are you willing to go to? To what end are you willing to go to to demonstrate your love to those who matter? And I think in attempting to answer those questions, it frames my ideas around intimacy because it speaks to who matters in my life and how I let them know who matters. Corona may be around for a long time. Who knows? We don't know. Um, but this might be a good time to reconceptualize our ideas of love and how we express that love so that those whom we value, um, who really matter to us, uh, know that they are truly loved by us. I think that's really important. And so I will pass it along to Erin. Thank you. I, going last is really hard because there's so many things that I'm like reflecting on it that folks have shared in their own introductions. And so my mind is spinning right now. Um, but my name is Erin Brown and I'm the coordinator for sexual violence prevention and education at Humber. Um, and I'm actually also a student right now at U of T. Um, my pronouns are he, him, and his, and I identify as a queer cisgender man. Um, I'm also a white settler on this land, and, and I grew up uh, in very white towns of Midland, Barrie, and North Bay before moving to Toronto. Um, and um, as a queer person, I think a lot about intimacy um, and, and some of these reflections that other folks have been sharing. Um, it's really interesting when I think about my experience in, in these small towns and um, for me, I always laugh um, because in high school, I thought I was straight, which like, LOL. Um, I was definitely the last person to find out that I'm queer. Um, and then being in North Bay, um, I think was also really challenging for me when I'm thinking about these ideas of, of um, intimacy and love and in particular with romantic and sexual relationships because um, at least at the time, like it certainly wasn't North Gay. Like I, it really, I felt in many ways isolated there and alone um, through that journey and through that reflection. Um, and so I think that that plays um, a big role in, in my ideas around intimacy. Um, 
And I um, think about when I view romantic relationships, uh, I am someone who has never been in one longer than like two months um, and it should not have even lasted that long. Um, and so in, in many ways, I think that there's still a lot of learning and a lot of uncovering that I'm doing with myself. And so uh, when I think about how I identify, like I, I lean towards monogamy, but I also um, think that there's, you know, I haven't had an opportunity to really understand what a monogamous relationship looks like in, in many ways. And so I think there's still um, a lot of learning happening there. Um, when I think about my experience with COVID, um, I spent the first four and a half months of the pandemic um, in Buffalo, where my mom was receiving treatment, um, and then back in Barrie uh, with my mom and my stepdad if we returned from Buffalo. Um, and there's, you know, a very different sense of intimacy in that, in, in being home with family, um, <laughs> for the first time in a very long time living in the house together, uh, which is um, really an adjustment. And I think that those relationships look very different for me than how I perceive other people's family relationships. And um, I think that there's a lot of closeness that had been lost in my family. And um, I think in many ways there was a lot of isolation within our family unit. And so um, COVID has brought a real opportunity to explore that um, a bit by choice, a bit by not choice. And, and so that's been really interesting. And um, But now I'm back in Toronto and I do have a roommate, but she's um, never around, which sometimes I really love because I love having my own space as a very introverted person. Um, but also being very isolated in the city now has also been um, a real moment for reflection and, and, and thinking during this time, um, particularly because now 4.5 months into the pandemic, when I finally came back to Toronto, a lot of folks have already found their bubbles and that sort of thing. And so um, that was, it's been a bit of an interesting experience, particularly thinking forwards to the winter and what does that mean and, and where um, should I be during that time? Um, when we're having these conversations of intimacy, I find that I, I don't think of physicality at, per, at first. Um, I really go to this idea of like vulnerability, trust, comfort, and openness. Um, you know, I just, there's, intimacy to me is about being able to like let our guard down with another person and feel a sense of um, connection. Uh, but physicality is also a part of that. Um, and for me, that's even just that, that piece of proximity. I feel like you can feel something in the air with another person. Um, and I think that's something that I'm really struggling with right now, um, during COVID-19 because like, I'm not able to be around anyone to some degree. Um, there is an element of course of, of touch, um, both sexually, but also just like, man, I would like give anything for like a super good hug right now. Like those are fantastic. And, and those feelings that come from that, I think are so important. And, and that's something that um, I value so much when we talk about love languages, like mine is physical affirmation. Um, and it's something that I um, feel really starved for right now. Um, 
as I mentioned, I, you know, I tend to be very independent and very introverted. And I think, you know, for me, community has been a really interesting experience because um, in North Bay, I feel like I was really able to build up a great community um, as a student and then as, as an employee at Nipissing University. And leaving that community has been very challenging. And coming to Toronto where um, I don't feel really any sense of community um, has been really adjustment. I, I think that the people that I associate as like my people in Toronto um, are very much people at work. Um, and like, I love them. And I know some of them are on the call and like, love you. Um, but I, in many ways, that's also challenging and trying to find, you know, that, that work-life balance that um, Monique mentioned and, and what is that experience. Um, in some ways, it's helpful that uh, most of the important people in my life are spread out across the country. Very few um, are here in Toronto. Um, that sort of helps prepare one for a pandemic where we can't see those people. Um, but I'm also someone who struggles with long distance communication. Um, and that's been a bit of a journey that I'm undergoing right now as well. And, and how do I navigate during that this time where um, in many ways, I think that I really need to rely on that and that engagement. And so um, that's been a, a real piece of exploration for me right now. Um, I think, you know, touching on these ideas of spirituality, uh, I'm someone who feels very connected um, and restored when I am by water. You know, I, I don't, um, I'm not a religious person. I don't have a specific faith, but I find that those pieces are really restorative for me. And again, I'm thinking about what that means as we move into the winter months. And I am not a winter person like the people who are, I don't get it, but like, good for you. I love that for you. Um, but I think that that's something that I'm also trying to figure out is how do I um, find that opportunity to be restored without um, frostbite? Like that's something that I would really like to figure out. And so I think that these are all sort of things that are really spiraling in my mind and trying to figure out what, you know, the next six months for me are going to be. And I, and I think we're going to be in this situation much longer um, I am not an optimist in that sense, perhaps, but um, I think that's really for me is like, how do we plan out and how do I come up with a plan for my wellness needs at, uh, during the next six months? Um, so that's sort of where my brain is at, um, but I will um, save the rest for my little chat afterwards. Thank you, Erin. And huge thanks to all of our panelists for joining us. I, I was thinking, even as we were just going through the introductions with, with uh, lots of good sharing to, to come, how fortunate we are to have this group join us and be so willing to share of yourselves to facilitate conversations and learning for the rest of the group. Um, and should share a little bit in terms of format for next steps uh, or the rest of the, the session. Uh, each of our panelists will be um, sharing some more uh, about their experiences with love, connection, and intimacy during the pandemic. Um, and, and we'll sort of um, give our panelists an opportunity to, to speak a little bit further to, to that particular topic. Um, and again, reiterating for our audience members, you're welcome to use the Q&A and ask any questions that are coming up for you along the way. Um, and also visit that, that Padlet link that, that has been shared in the chat. 
We also want to just let folks know that we will be talking about lots of um, different experiences that folks might have had, including experiences with mental health challenges, with, with trauma, sexual and gender-based violence, et cetera, et cetera. And, and to uh, what Amita shared earlier, really encouraging the audience to, um, you know, navigate uh, the space in a way that, that feels good for you and feel free to step away and engage with supports as you need to um, and take care of yourself as we go. And we will be sharing links to, to resources to follow from the event um, as we kind of summarize and come to conclusion. So with that, and having met all of our wonderful panelists for the day, um, we'll hand it over to Sylvia to, to share first. Thanks, Rick. All right, let's dive in. I'm really excited about this second edition. Okay, so as we explore love and connection, I think it's important to reflect. Let's start by reflecting on what those two words mean. Love and connection. I wanna tell you about my love story. Not a story about being in love, but a story about how I have come to know love. And we'll circle back to COVID, I promise. We all have a love story, a narrative about how we receive and give love, how love was first presented to us, and whether we know barriers to being in the presence of love. I grew up the middle child, which, if you're a middle child, speaks for itself. I was a middle child in an immigrant household, and we often felt like we were of two worlds not quite at home here, and not entirely belonging to elsewhere. My parents were racialized when they came to Canada and worked hard at fitting in. In fact, much of what I remember about growing up was about keeping up, blending in, and working harder than the next person. My parents worked really hard. They worked factory jobs, and they worked a lot. As in many immigrant families, my grandmother was my caregiver and probably my first love. It was hard as a young child to breathe in love when my parents' time was just so limited. The expectations on us were clear. We grew up in a sexist home with strict gender norms. Conforming to these expectations was important to our story of fitting in and belonging. In the five love languages, Dr. Gary Chapman describes five ways that we uniquely give and receive love. My mother's love language has always been acts of service. Her migration story and long arduous hours on the assembly line was her service to the family. As a young child, I didn't see her experiences as brave at the time. I looked upon them with contempt. The world was taking my parents away from me is how I interpreted their absence and their exhaustion. My love language is quality time. So I later learned to really resent capitalism and the logics of neoliberalism for forcing my family to be so absent in order to be able to survive, afford housing, put food on the table. When I was young, I learned that love was a zero-sum game. And so just to recap, zero sum means that someone's gain is balanced by the loss of someone else. So the total of all losses and gains is zero. With limitations already placed on my parents' time, I felt that as my siblings gained adoration, 
which the oldest and youngest always do. Mine was diminished. Love as presented to me was like a pie. More for others meant less for me. And so as a young teen, I developed personal mechanisms to deal with the pain of feeling starved of love and connection. Growing up Italian, presence and connection were abundant during times when family gathered over food, holidays, birthdays, and religious celebrations. My mom's attention was abundant around food making. Love seemed to be passed through the hands and into the artful creations of food. So food became love for me. From the age of 14, I developed a soul-ravaging eating disorder, oscillating between bulimia and anorexia. I would overeat food in attempts to catch a glimpse of security to fill this void and conversely restrict what I ate as the ultimate acts of self-defiance to remind myself and the world around me that I was not worthy of any kind of security and safety. I battled this form of self-abuse for 18 years until I was ready to begin to peel off the armor that rendered me numb to the pain of feeling broken. Each November, I celebrate remission from eating disorders. This is 10 years, so yay. I used to call it remission, actually. I should correct myself. As though I was rid of some condition, I know it now to be healing. The healing really took shape when I began to recognize all the ways that I had been asked to be in this world, all the ways that I had bent away from love for fear of not being enough to deserve it. I began a process of unbecoming, of unpeeling the layers. But these layers protected me. And here is the revolutionary piece for me. The layers that protected me were also mechanisms that fed into the machinery of sexism, patriarchy, racism, colonialism, ableism. The layers asked that I reinforce the stereotypes that wounded me in the first place. I was taught to role play gender norms, to stay quiet in the face of adversity, and to be silent when I knew it was wrong to be silent. I'm not the exception. I know that as a woman, my experiences have always been the rule. And I was not equipped with the language to speak out against my experiences of sexual violence. In fact, only recently did I recognize them to be experiences of sexual violence because many of us are taught that these experiences are our faults. We internalize those gender, um, those gender norms. Love was a scarce resource, and the healing took form when I came to know this question. Who am I before the world told me who I could be? Who am I before the world told me who I could be? It has been a deep part of my personal journey to see where I have learned to reproduce systemic harm. We often don't believe ourselves to be implicated in the big, harmful, violent systems of racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, like Monique alluded to in her introduction. But we also don't see how much these systems rely on our silence, our shame, 
of disassociation and separation, ultimately on our undeservingness of love. The overt slurs, jokes, microaggressions are harmful, but from where I stand, they account for a very small portion of how the machinery of systemic oppression actually operates. Bias and violence rely on our silence and self-doubt, on our exhaustion in a relentless social system that praises independence, merit, and strength, and ultimately self-regulation away from this feeling of brokenness. It teaches us that we are unlovable and that it is us that needs to change and search for it until we get it right, until we are lovable again. So coming back, the story is about how I navigate the unfamiliar terrain of COVID. It's how I came to learn to make space to grieve. The world literally feels like it's imploding right now. The earth on fire, burning forests, communal pandemic fevers, heated bigotry disguised as political banter. COVID continues to amplify all that no longer serves humanity. In times of uncertainty, inequality is amplified. The pandemic has had disproportionate impacts. You're seeing this on women, LGBTQ2S plus folks, people with disabilities, black, indigenous people of color. Here is why I needed to tell this story, maybe to introduce this bigger discussion. Because at some point, our bodies all learned it wasn't okay to be broken. And so we hardened, and that hardens the world. I learned that love wasn't available to me, so I numbed myself, which kept me separated from the world. And this is how we perpetuate hate, violence, divisiveness. We stay hard to what is happening around us. Healing from a pandemic and acting in the face of inequality requires that we feel it first. We implicate ourselves in it all first. My greatest moments of showing love to myself and to my community has been in the peeling back all that I was taught to be that serves and perpetuates the hardness of this world. So I encourage us all to think about a few things. What deep barriers exist for us to fully receive love in our lives? How are these barriers connected to stories that also require some sort of attention, healing, maybe self-compassion? And lastly, how might that healing in ourselves have amplifying impacts on our community and our response to COVID and on a more honest, authentic connection with one another? Thanks, Sylvia. We'll hand it over to Erin for sharing next. Yeah. Um, when I think about the future of love and intimacy, um, I struggle with this a lot. Um, I sort of laugh. I used to, I don't know if people remember the show That's So Raven, but like I loved it when I was growing up and I used to sing That's So Aaron and pretend that I could see the future. And unfortunately I cannot. Um, but I am really thinking about what I'm doing in the present, um, that's setting me up 
for success in the future? And what are the ways that I am already starting that recalibration? Um, and I think for me, I'm really thinking about that because I uh, feel that this is going to be our reality for the foreseeable future. Um, and so I think that that's really where my, my mind is at these days. Um, I will say as someone who gets paid to spend a lot of time talking about consent, um, that uh, I'm excited about the ways in which I think COVID is prompting um, more discussion around wants, needs, and behaviors. And I, I do feel like I'm seeing a lot more communication with folks. Um, whenever making plans with friends, there's typically a conversation around what everyone involved is comfortable with. You know, do we dine indoors versus outdoors? Um, I, um, I laugh in our last panel, I was talking about how like unfortunate it is to be at home and not be able to have sex and how much I miss that. And now being back in Toronto, I can, which is great. Um, but I've seen stuff in guys, you know, grinders profiles, for instance, about how they want to hear about what safety precautions someone is taking, um, before they meet up. And I, I think that those, um, conversations are so exciting to see uh, and the ways that folks are setting those boundaries I think are really great. Um, I am, you know, cautiously optimistic that these sorts of consent and boundary conversations will continue past the pandemic. Um, again, partially because I think we're going to be this in so long that these habits will hopefully become ingrained. Um, but I'm also really hoping for a future where love and intimacy is really much more, uh, you know, communicative. It's mutually agreed upon. There's respectful boundaries. Um, and so that's one of the things that I think I, I am really excited about this time. Um, when I think about the ways that I'm adjusting and considering love and intimacy in my own life, um, I'm sort of seeing it in, in three sorts of orbits. And so I'm thinking about like the inner, the immediate surroundings, and then the longer distance. Um, in, in our last chat, Sylvia shared a lot about her journey inward and exploring intimacy with herself. And I feel that now I'm in a place where um, being away from home and being able to sort of be with my own thoughts, because um, it doesn't happen a lot at home. Um, I feel like I am really able to, to turn inward a lot more. Um, it's, it's a lot of time with just me right now. Um, and that's not always super comfortable. Um, as someone with a, a history of depressive episodes and, and thoughts of self-harm and suicide, um, like solo time is not always the best. Um, and I think without being physically at work or in a classroom, um, it's really me like in my bedroom right now um, a lot of the time. And so I'm having to get real comfortable with, with all that time alone with my thoughts and um, a lot of that reflective time. And, and how do I be intentional about that and um, set myself up for good habits with that? Um, Something that I have been trying to, to spend a lot more time doing um, is activities that I find more restorative and like trying to romance myself in a way. And so taking long baths, listening to Nora Jones and, and having candles lit, um, going for long strolls. I did like a 10K walk on Sunday and like I regret it because my hips are so sore from it. Um, but, and I did not wear proper footwear, but, you know, trying to do these things that I find really helpful for me and, and trying to get acquainted with new parts of the city and exploring. And, and that's been really helpful. 
I'm trying to spend a lot of time by the water when I can. Um, and I um, am trying to be more leisurely in my strolls as well, um, as opposed to speed walking. Um, I, I'm, you know, I'm someone who's trying to cook more like legit meals and attempting to love that process. I'm not there yet. Um, I always see Sylvia posting all these great photos of all her meals and um, I'm not there. And I think it'll be a long time, but uh, I think that those are ways that I can um, make the most of this time and I think build some intimacy into this, into this opportunity. Um, I don't currently explore any guided reflections um, but I am trying to practice more mindfulness and, and really pay attention to both my body and my mind. Um, given the physical isolation of this pandemic, trying to maintain a healthy and loving relationship with myself first and foremost has really been, I think, the mission that I'm on. Um, and like, who knows if I'm doing well yet, we'll see. Um, but I, I think that there's this real turn inward. Um, and I think that other folks will be experiencing that during this time as well. I also am trying to find a way to establish meaningful connections. And so, you know, as I've noted, like, I, I don't necessarily feel a great sense of community in the city. Um, and, you know, when I say I'm an introvert, like I really mean it, um, you know, back in the world before COVID, whatever that was, I can't remember that, but, uh, you know, I'd get home from work and not want to see, um, like, nor say a word to anyone until the following day, because I felt like I would expended so much social energy at work. Um, and I, you know, I specifically remember, um, you know, it, when I lived back in North Bay, I had a roommate who had like a really terrible day um, and wanted to vent to me, but I'd also had like a, just a really exhausting day. And so I was like, cool, you get 10 minutes. And like, I'm not going to say anything. Like I'll just sit and I'll listen. And then I need to go to my room and like, I'll see you tomorrow. Um, and so I think that that context is really important. Um, and then I'm a person that spends a lot of time in solitude and isolation. Um, but given that I don't get that social interaction during the day anymore, um, I'm really feeling starved for it. Um, partially because I also feel there's like only so much I can do alone. Um, there's only so many things on Netflix. Like there's only so many books to read. Um, and um, I also, I mean, capitalist society, always feeling the pressure needs to be productive. Um, but I am trying to focus on more meaningful connections than with chatting with people for the sake of it. And so um, part of this for me was actually deleting Grindr and Tinder. Um, and while I was having a lot of great conversations with a lot of people on the apps, I was also finding that I was wasting um, a lot of time there. And I was also having a lot of mediocre conversations on those apps too. Um, and so thinking about where am I spending that energy and, and what... Um, is this serving me has been really important. Um, for me, it's also, I mean, I know that there's people in my life that I can always connect with for like sexting or sex and Instagram is also basically a dating app. So like, it's nice that I still have those avenues if I need them. Um, but I think for me, I'm really trying to figure out like who are the people that I've fallen out of touch with because of distance and, and how do I start reestablishing those relationships? Um, part of that has also had to be, you know, being cognizant of how um, they might feel given that I have been more distant and, and how do we reestablish that and what does that negotiation look like? 
Um, but I'm, I'm really trying to foster those opportunities. Um, I'm also someone who used to hate patios because I don't like sweating and I don't like sunburns. Um, but I've also had to acclimatize to that because it's one of the main ways that I've been able to connect with friends in person right now. Um, and so, you know, I used to, to go a month at a time, maybe even more without really seeing people outside of work, class or texting. Um, but I'm really, you know, trying to like book time into my calendar to reconnect with folks. And, and that for me is how I need to do that because I live by my calendar. Um, so that's been really important and, and really trying to nourish myself in, in that sense in those relationships. Um, and I think for me, that's also exploring, extending beyond that typical handful of people that I spend time with as well. Um, and exploring some of those new connections with folks where I've been like, you know what, like, I always felt like there was something here, but we just never took the time to explore this dynamic and um, seeing what we can make of that and, and um, figure that out. And then for me, this is also a bit about uh, reconnecting across distances. And so, um, like, as I said, I am like total trash at long distance communication. Like I text, you know, a few of my best friends, like maybe once every six weeks. Um, it's really <laughs> not frequent. It's not my forte. And it's something that I'm really trying to push myself to improve on. And, um, you know, I, I don't think it's necessary for everyone, but the most important people in my life are mostly not in Toronto. And so I'm recognizing that it is a need for me in this. Um, and that, you know, I don't think it will ever be stellar, but I'm consciously, you know, booking that time, checking in with people that I value. Um, for me, if, you know, people are comfortable with it and not burnt out from Zoom fatigue, um, trying to do FaceTime. Uh, I think that that's been really important, wanting to see these people again. Um, for me, you know, this also means responding to my mom's text on a regular basis. Um, even though like I would say her content is usually subpar and she could step up that game. Um, it also means calling my dad instead of always waiting on him to call. Um, it's really recognizing that I haven't always historically invested in these relationships um, in, in a reciprocal way or sometimes even at all. Um, and holding myself to account for that um, and then putting that work in. Um, and so I do really think that, um, you know, for a long period of time, our communication is going to be remote. And so for me, figuring out what does that look like? What works for me? What doesn't? And how do I negotiate that uh, with the other people in my life? Um, so I'd say that those are sort of some of the reflections that are on my mind and, and as I'm looking forward and, um, doing those recalibrations right now. I, you know, I don't know that I can see what the future of love and intimacy looks like in 12 months from now, but I think that um, engaging in these sorts of practices are really important in getting us to that point. Um, and so at this point, I will pass it along to Monique. Thank you, Erin. I don't know if it's an introvert thing, but I'm having to put a lot of effort <laughs> into my relationships as well. And it's, it's a lot of effort. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, thanks so much for sharing. And, um, you know, Sylvia, your question of who am I? Like, who am I before the world told me who I could be really resonates with me. And I think that, um, I think that for myself, my ideas around love and connection started at home as well. And um, I, think, I think for a lot of people, it kind of started first, in, like we were introduced to love in the home. 
Um, so as I mentioned earlier, love for me is an action word. So it's love is something that you do, you demonstrate. Um, love is something that I give. I grew up in a household that expressed love, not by touching or feeling or hugging. I actually rarely saw my parents hold hands, kiss or even hug, very rarely. And so I saw their marriage as more of a partnership between two good friends or um, two people who just agreed to walk life together. That's what I saw um, their marriage as. So growing up, you know, I didn't realize how much I longed for that type of love that I had seen expressed on TV, in commercials or even movies. Even though I longed for it, I realized in my relationships, I had a really hard time initiating that type of love. What I was hoping to experience was very difficult for me to initiate it because it's foreign to me, right? Um, and so I'd often hear growing up, my boyfriend say things like, yeah, but I don't really feel like you want me because they're looking for a certain expression of love, an expression that I was completely unfamiliar with. And so I would be confused when they'd make like that because I'd buy them the world, right? I'd be buying them shoes, clothes, jewelry, you name it. I'm buying them gifts because I'm demonstrating my love. Um, for me, that's what expressing love looked like. Now, when I think about emotional connection, um, I believe it's something that is seen. Um, I think, Erin, I think you were sharing that you can just tell that there's something in the air, right? So I think that for an emotional connection, it's something that is seen, but it's often developed through conversation over a period of time or just over a period of time, spending time with each other, right? You build an emotional connection with somebody. Um, I think connection is definitely amplified through our physical touch or our physical expression of love for each other. Hands down, I totally agree with that. But I do think that you can have a deep emotional connection with someone you've never physically touched before. Um, this is why I believe the intangible outweighs the tangible. It's what makes emotional affairs so dangerous, right? It's been said that it's harder to break off an emotional affair with someone than a physical affair, right? Because it's like, it runs so deep. My husband and I, I would say, have um, a deep emotional connection. You know, we've always been, um, we've always seen each other as each other's soulmates. And I think it just has to do with how we first got together. We got together as friends. Um, there was, on my part, no physical attraction whatsoever. He would argue otherwise, <laughs> but there was none on my part um, because I, I just, I didn't like him in terms of his personality. And then eventually um, I got to know him a little bit more and we became really good friends to the point where we became best friends. And then it grew into something so much deeper. And so, you know, my husband and I would say that we have a really deep emotional connection. Um, and so while at the beginning of the lockdown during COVID, right, um, we were all over each other because we've got all this time to spend with each other. Um, like many couples, that quickly died down because, you know, we were in each other's faces all the time, in each other's spaces, and um, just so much more than we would have liked to have been. It's nice to, to be able to leave the home, go to work, and come back and, oh, there you are. I haven't seen you in such a long time, a few hours, right? Um, COVID didn't allow for that for us anyhow. Uh, and so things kind of calmed down. And so, you know, I, we found ourselves having to ask, um, how do we show each other love without bombarding the other, without it becoming just too much, right? 
Um, what does that expression look like? And how do I respect one's space and time when oftentimes our space and time is shared and those lines are often blurred, right? Like, how do I do that? I can't help but reflect upon the five love languages. My husband's um, love language is physical touch and my love language is words of affirmation, of course, right? Um, I recognize uh, these needs can actually be met in um, our monogamous relationship because we are both living with each other um, and trust for each other, um, trust for us isn't an issue at this point in time, it isn't an issue. Um, and so we can fill each other's tank. That is a possibility. Um, and so when we are actively filling each other's love tanks, we are saying to each other that I value you. You belong here in this relationship. And I believe that that's really important. But what about the others? Right? So this is where my lens comes in. Right? I'm just kind of checking my privilege here. What about the others? What about folks who um, have the love language of receiving gifts, but can't leave their home to purchase a gift or the materials to create a gift, right? Or folks who are single and their love language is physical touch and they're literally longing for somebody's physical touch. Or folks who are in relationships that are receiving the physical touch that they aren't longing for. The touch that makes them cringe the touch that makes them feel further isolated and further disconnected from themselves and even this outside world, right? That unwanted touch that renders them visible, um, vulnerable. What about those people? I can't help but think about these things and how privileged I am in the area of love during a time that has been so difficult for so many people. Perhaps Corona is prompting us to rethink some ideas around love and connection and how we choose to engage in helping others feel like they belong in our relationships. Maybe this is a time to reflect on our own needs and how we've come to develop these, those needs or, or how we've come to develop our ideas around love. Where did that come from? Where does that stem from, right? I loved, um, I loved that, uh, the narrative that you know, Sylvia shared earlier. Like, where do our ideas come from? So maybe this is a time for us to reflect on our own needs and how we've come to develop those, those needs or those ideas. Maybe this is a time for, just, for us to just stop. Like just stop, stop with the familiar, but to be courageous enough to move into the unfamiliar. Hmm. Maybe Corona is pulling, us, pulling so much out of us, so much more out of us. And maybe that's what's actually making us feel uncomfortable. <laughs> Right? We're moving into uncharted, unfamiliar ground because we're now having to reconceptualize our ideas and our ideas, um, our feelings and our ideas about love, connection, and belonging. But is that such a terrible thing? Maybe this discomfort is forcing us to unlearn so that we can let go of what we've always known about love so that we can be then introduced to another layer or dimension of love. Like maybe that's what all this discomfort's really about. Letting go and really embracing what's being introduced to us, another layer or another dimension of love. I don't know. But these are some of the things that I'm, I'm kind of thinking about. And 
I kind of want to encourage you all to think about um, some of these thoughts as well. Just uh, was quickly thinking and sorry to pause before you, Sean, but um, all the brilliant things that are coming up and the questions that I feel like we could pause for five minutes of reflection after each of our speakers and unpack so much of this. Um, and encouraging folks to jot down what, what you're wondering from, from Monique, from Aaron, from Sylvia, and all of the brilliant sharings that you've brought to the group and conversation and some of the amazing questions for reflection as well. I know lots of them are running through my head. Um, so, so encouraging folks to just jot those down and share with us in the Q&A as we go. Um, and with that, over to you, Sean. Hey, um... So I'm gonna start a little, a little different on my little talk. So, way, woof, 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 way, woof, 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 way, woof, 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 way, woof, woof, woof. Tanse, nigazido dem, was a kone mashki ki na disnakas nihianatia tensmark nakawe endau to Toronto Tonji Peterborough or Nagonjuan Nagonjuba. Um, so when I think about the, what all of the panelists have shared and I think about the notion of connection, I'm going to take it a little bit different um, and I'm going to reverse actually in some ways what I would probably typically do, uh, which is that I would start sort of talking with the personal and then work my way out to the more systemic pieces, but I'm actually just going to go a little in reverse there. Um, so when I think about how we move towards connection, and I wanted to pick up on that notion of love being an action word. Uh, that uh, Monique was talking about. In our languages, uh, in many of our languages, uh, Nishnabe Moan in particular, as well as Natia uh, Lewin, uh, um, we talk about how uh, our languages are action-based. And they're not based on gender, but they're based on this notion of what is alive or animate and inanimate. And so uh, I think one of the, the difficulties of understanding the, a lot of these concepts from a, from a settler colonial perspective, from my interpretation, uh, is that you have taken a language that uh, is based in description uh, and is not necessarily based in verbs and you have imposed it on us. And, and so there, you know, and it's an incredibly limited and confusing language for anyone who's, who's had to learn English as a second language. Uh, you know, it doesn't make sense. Uh, there's lots of parts where it makes sense in the context of its own rules, but doesn't really make sense uh, intuitively in a ways that other, other languages did. Um, so I want to make, uh, again, clear that, um, that that's a, that thing that we're, that I'm thinking about. Um, when we talk about community connection, so for me, first and foremost, when I think about connection, I think about community and I think about what community connections look like in a time where, uh, you know, and, and, and today, uh, in the last couple of days where we have cases spiking, right? So, you know, the, the, the cases have gone up to, to 700 uh, today in Ontario. I think that was the, you know, and they keep going up. So, you know, Although no one probably wants to say it out loud, like there's a good chance that we're heading into another lockdown soon. And I think about what does that look like when those size limits for community uh, get imposed on community because of, um, you know, and I'm going to say this, like, you know, because there's different ways that different First Nations and other folks have dealt with all of this. Um, but in particular, you know, a lot of the behavior is coming from urban settings, right? A lot of behavior that is that is in particular, like, increasing the numbers right now is coming from urban settings of people going to bars and like other places that, uh, you know, maybe aren't necessary, uh, maybe necessary for their mental health to some extent, but also are putting at risk uh, folks who have to work as servers in those places. So th there's a whole lot we could unpack there and that would be a whole other webinar, I'm sure in and of itself. But what I think about is how, um, how do we carry knowledge uh, that has been pushed to extinction uh, because of settler colonialism? 
And so for some folks, I know uh, a lot of folks I've heard talk about the pandemic, you know, that it's a, a chance of pause and reflection. Um, but for us, it has become a barrier for transmission of knowledge uh, that very few people still hold because of what's happened to us um, and the genocide that's occurred to us over 150 years. And so how do we honor and understand our relationships to our family, to our community, you know, when our ceremonies, um, like when we do ceremony, we're not necessarily just doing ceremony for ourselves, although that's a big component of it. But we, we talk about how we do ceremony for the land to keep the, the waters clean and safe, to keep, uh, to keep the earth uh, safe and clean and doing what it, what, doing its job uh, that it is always, um, always completed and always done. And, and that's part of our obligation. So when all of a sudden you have public health saying, okay, well, people can only gather to 10 inside in 25, and we have ceremonies that we're doing, uh, you know, that actually, that makes it illegal for us to do that. That makes it, uh, makes us have to make some very um, difficult choices around rights that are protected for us under treaty. Um, so how do we undo the acts of racism and genocide that has meant that 95% of our population has been decimated by pandemics, right? So that's the history of our country, um, of this country and of North America is that, you know, 95% of our, our people were, were destroyed by the pandemics that were brought. Um, and so there's also that, uh, that memory, I think, uh, of the ways that we dealt with that in our own communities, the medicines we use. But it is important for me to acknowledge that, that um, any indigenous person that you see walking around, you know, we are the survivors of an apocalypse. And there's no other way for me to put it. So I think about that a lot around when people really love zombie movies and stuff like we also do, but we look at it like, hey, that's a reflection of our experience manifested, right? Like that literally is, you know, we are survivors um, of, of, a, of a horrific things, uh, you know, orange shirt days tomorrow. So thinking about that too, of the residential school system and all of these things were designed to sever us from our connection to each other and to the land. And so to me, we can't talk about this notion of, COVID without acknowledging that um, whether it's intentional or not, um, that some of these uh, discussions and pieces that don't take these things into consideration, that is the end result of them. That is the impact on them. We've also lived through isolation, uh, through things like the reserve system, through the road allowance system and other pieces. And we have to acknowledge that the governments have never honored the treaties that they signed with us. Um, my family were signatories of treaties four, six and eight, and those treaties have never been honored. And instead, um, we have uh, had our cultures outlawed and the transmission of them made illegal for, for, uh, for many years. So um, depending on the area, it could have been anywhere from 60 to 70 years that that was the explicit policy. So a lot of our knowledge systems and, uh, and the, the things that folks carried, you know, those things had to be hidden for a little bit. Uh, and we are just in a stage now where we can start to share those things with, with openly with people. So I think a lot about how you know, if this is our new reality, how do we continue to do that work that we need to, that, that our old ones um, were thinking about it and dreamed about? Um, and then the other thing I think about along that vein is how do the limits uh, that are arbitrary um, and not based on science from what I understand um, from a public health policy perspective, um, how do those limits actually get weaponized against us when we're doing things like protesting? So when we think about all of the things that were happening in sort of March and April, when we think about what's going on with uh, 1492 Land Back Lane, uh, with McMackey right now, with the, with the fishing uh, and the racism that's coming up from those things, you know, <clears throat> um, 
I wrote a poem uh, a few months ago about my frustration um, about what happened at Trinity Bellwoods Park when the when the when when the things were starting to open up again a little bit, and how you know there were no tickets handed out there. And I can tell you that I know for a fact, I know people who have been arrested and removed from lands that are their ancestral territories. Um, and so how policy uh, gets weaponized against us is an ongoing thing that we have to consider. And so that's a piece of it. The, the next thing I think about is this notion of what does it mean to have connection? And in that way, I think of the, the Anishinaabe term, um, which is this idea of uh, we are all related to one another. And we know based on our teachings that, um, and I'm not going to go into a lot here because I'm not a, an old person or an elder. So I'm going to very subtly skim the surface of some of these things to just acknowledge that uh, the knowledge systems that we had around these things are very old, very ancient and, and brilliant. So we talked about how, as an example, you know, um, the way we understood the way humans are made up, that all humans need um, section, sex, affection and love that all humans need to eliminate waste, need to eat food and need to, to drink. So we have thirst. And when we do things like fasting ceremonies or other ceremonies, those are the things that we, that we deprive ourselves of because first and foremost, we're, we're what we call sort of spiritual beings. And so if we all need love, and I think about how creation's love is uh, unconditional and absolute, then you know, there is this piece around uh, yes, we, we absolutely need connection with human, but uh, with other humans, but then how do we make sure we're also still connecting with our lands and with, with the beings that are not just humans, right? And so some folks have talked about how, you know, um, getting outside, being in nature, like those sorts of things are really important for us. And I think it can be critically important um, when we're feeling isolated because it, there's a tendency that we have to, um, to forget our humanity, I think, uh, and our connection to other people when we end up stuck in our houses for a long time. And I say that as someone who's culturally, who are people, we're stuck in, in small dwellings with family for a long time, right? So when you think of some of the, the people that my, my family comes from who are Plains, Woods, Cree, and Anishinaabe in the North, you know, winters are eight months long and you know, there's like eight to 10 feet of snow. So you're not going anywhere. <laughs> so what we did is we found ways like storytelling and other things to, to pass that time um, and, and to teach each other and to, to, learn, um, to learn lessons and, and pieces. So there's a lot you can learn, I think, from Indigenous peoples around how to survive extreme isolation for long periods of time. <clears throat> so it is kind of funny to me when people are complaining, they're like, oh, we've been on lockdown for a month. I'm like, okay, we used to like historically be in small family groups of, you know, maybe one or two families for eight months of the year. So like, there's a lot of lessons there. And, 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 um, I know, uh, Inuit folks and those folks that are even further north, you know, they have a lot that they could talk about in terms of what it means to be isolated from each other and to have small families for, for long periods of time. Um, we also know that we're responsible for more than ourselves. So while COVID is, is largely impacting us as humans, um, it's also, I think, been paradoxically this like really necessary break for the planet. So I know when, when we were stuck inside for a while there, you know, there was a really cool thing where the skies cleaned up a little bit, the waters cleaned up a little bit. Like it was actually a really good break for the earth. And I think that should probably uh, tell us a message about um, about the impact that we're currently having uh, on, on our environment around us. Um, because when our sort of the industrial complex stopped, 
the earth heal, right? And this is the intention actually to some extent every winter. Um, you know, it's capitalism that, that has made that we go through 12 months a year nonstop. But the idea is that's what winter was. Winter was a time to stop and let the earth heal itself. And so uh, I'm thinking about that as it, as it comes up into the future. And I think about how capitalism-centered colonialism has divorced us as Anishinaabe people, uh, which when we say Anishinaabe, we're not talking about um, just like indigenous people, we're talking about all people. And you know, there's a lot of ways you can break down that, that word and that term. Um, but some of it is about that you know, we are reflections of the earth itself. Um, like we're many versions of the earth around the, the like uh, little beings of water is a way to think about it. Um, and that we have uh, days upon days upon days, 28 uh, days of relationship teachings. Our creation stories take 12 days to tell um, or some of them, some, some longer. Uh, and that's not even sort of going into every detail. That's just like a, a skim. Um, and that we also specifically have teachings around uh, things like um, sex and affection and how we biologically relate to each other uh, in an explicit way in a community setting. And so those are also teachings around consent and free will um, that were present here before settler colonialism um, removed them. So in some ways, what's interesting for me is thinking about, you know, consent education now doesn't know really that this is a thing we had already, like this idea of, um, of, of free will and non-interference and consent were bedrocks of, of a lot of our nations. Uh, I know for sure, like Nihia and um, Anishinaabek, um, but that, you know, there's again, a lot of lessons that we can learn about um, how you can structure societies that it can exist for, for thousands of years on a, on a place, on a territory and on a place. Um, for myself, in terms of relationship structures, um, I identify as someone who engages in relationships that are uh, critical and non-monogamous. Um, and I take a lot of insight and, and uh, articulation from uh, scholars and brilliant uh, Indigenous folks such as Dr. Kim Talbert, uh, where um, it's grappling with what it means to exist in relationships that are consensual with everything around us. So not just humans, not just who we live with, but you know, when we uh, pick medicines, when we uh, take firewood, uh, we're supposed to put Sema down our tobacco um, as a way to ask um, whatever it is and, and we're supposed to talk to whatever it is that we're, we're harvesting to explain what it is that we're doing and why um, to, to ensure that, uh, that, that, is, that the, the, the being uh, that we are disturbing that is alive, um, that they understand why it is that we're, we're asking for and what we're doing. And so I think about this like, if that's what we do when we're, when we're picking medicines, how much more do we have to think about that in context to humans where, where we're dealing with, with things like free will? Um, and um, what it has meant during uh, the pandemic for me, uh, looking at the ethic of those things is a lot of conversations with potential partners and dates, figuring out what safety means and how comfortable we are visiting other people. Um, and also for myself <clears throat> as a, a Anishinaabe, um, Nahia person, um, uh, mixed person, it's also figuring out how do I set relationships with BIPOC folks? So <clears throat> for myself, it's really important to make sure that I'm spending time with, uh, with particularly indigenous people, but also sort of um, BIPOC people um, as partners and as friends, um, because I think uh, that that experience is really important for me, reminding uh, myself of my own humanity because of the, the collective oppressions that we've experienced under settler colonialism. And I also have um, an uh, uh, Ashkenazi Jewish partner that I live with, as well as another roommate and three cats. Um, and so we're also figuring out, you know, how do we live in that environment safely? So we were, we're living in what I think for, for, um, 
probably for our, our communities traditionally would not have been an, an untraditional way of living around more than just yourself and your, your partner and kids and whatever living together. Um, but certainly that is not the, the story of uh, the, the public health is designing for. So they are not equipped to deal with the fact that there are people who are not living in sort of very nuclear family situations. Um, and so even the, the talk of bubbles and the, the best advice is, is not centered around those kind of things. So it doesn't give us a lot of basis for how to have those conversations with each other around consent and around what people are comfortable with. And it's a lot of communication. I also started, um, started uh, seeing and dating uh, some, some new folks during Corona. And that was a lot of conversations and working through fears and concerns, you know, so those would already be a lot of conversations and particularly for, for non-monogamous folks and, and for folks who believe in that free will piece that it already takes a lot to do that. But then you throw in Corona and all of a sudden it's a lot more expensive conversations. But I think on the other side of that, it also makes the, those conversations real because um, it, it is, I think, pushing people to really prioritize and figure out for themselves what is actually important to them uh, and what has value um, in terms of what you're willing to take a risk for. So for myself, if that's, you know, having a lot of conversations so I can um, spend time with BIPOC people, if that's going to ceremony uh, and figuring out the way I can best um, protect myself and others with within the context of our teachings, like those are all a lot of labor that we have to do. And admittedly, um, what I will say as well, you know, is that I was not always great at maintaining those connections either. Um, and that for myself, you know, there'll be consequences to be dealt with for as long as this goes on around that. So I have to own and, and recognize the fact that, you know, um, there were uh, relationships and connections with people that that this uh, that this has disrupted, and I don't know for myself if those um, if those relationships and connections will ever be what they were before Corona. And so for me, there's also a lot of frustration about that um, because you know, especially when it's with other BIPOC people, it's hard enough for us to even like date each other. It's hard enough for us to date each other if we're non-monogamous, and we add all of these different identities. So for myself, as you know, also a mixed person, as a as a crip person, as a queer person. Um, as someone who is non-binary in English, like all of these things make those relationships much more difficult to navigate without this added fear that's coming in from other places. And so for myself, I'm also thinking about how do we um, balance being prudent and careful, but also not living in fear. Cause we also know from our, from our teachings and our articulation that um, fear makes you sick. So we talk about how you can't live a full life and you can't fully um, like, even mentally speaking, you can't use other parts of your brain. If you're in fight or flight, it, it's, you know, it's pretty simple that way for us. So I think it's that piece around, we have a lot of rituals. Um, I'll call them or ceremonies around living with fear and, and working through those things for yourself. And so those are also things that I'm thinking about <clears throat> in context, to all of this. Um, so I'll, I'll sort of wrap there and, and say, Ikozi, thank you for, uh, for that time. Many, many thank yous to Sean and all of our panelists. And um, as we were kind of hearing each of our panelists speak, I was sort of reflecting on the huge complexity of this topic and not just the topic itself, the complexity of what each individual human brings to it um, and really how we need to create these spaces for dialogue and understanding in terms of how we approach relationship, intimacy and connection, but then also hearing so many themes of how that translates into the connections and intimacy we are creating with the people in our lives and that our panelists were, were willing to share with us. Um, so saying that to sort of re-echo, I, I think my huge thanks to our panelists and to our audience for entering the conversation and really being able to sh share your process in doing that. 
And, you know, it's just kind of writing down a, a few themes that sort of intersected some of our discussions. And maybe we'll share some of those as a kind of introduction into our first um, question for the panel. Um, and, and while we're doing this, really encouraging folks to use the Q&A to add, add more questions um, that, that we're coming up for you as we go. So, so some of the themes that I was really hearing was across all of our panelists, really realizing the impacts of our developmental histories on, uh, of connection, connection with family, friends, intimate partners, um, on how we engage in relationship. And some of that coupling with how we process and grapple with and understand the impacts that trauma might have had on us. Um, and, and, you know, how that might show up in, in relationship with each other and with other humans now, in, 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 you know, even potentially many years after previous experiences and, and how we develop strategies to sort of navigate that. Um, and a, a resource, I'll actually post it in the chat shortly, but but a number of folks uh, posted in in you know, that need to, to develop an understanding of how we feel love and how we help others around us feel love. Um, and love languages as a source of sort of coming to some of that awareness and understanding. There's been a really fantastic uh, resource called Roots of Safety developed by a Toronto-based social worker that was just featured in Healthline by, by a writer, Gabrielle Smith, um, that, that sort of looks to extend that, that kind of idea of love languages in, in a trauma-informed way and in a tool that kind of enables, enables self-reflection and reflection with others. And that sort of leads into, I think, a theme across many of our panelists, that need of self-reflection and personal transformation first and getting comfortable with vulnerability before those deep connections are possible. And sort of uh, coming back to Monique's point about, and I love this language, personal un unlearning to deepen our ability to engage in connection and love. Um, and how the, the pandemic and the space we have, while coupled with fear and uncertainty, can provide some space for some of that unlearning. And last but certainly not least, I, I think a lot of themes around sort of being intentional with, with our time and our energy and, and sort of the ways we connect with each other, the ways we connect with land, the ways we connect to culture, to community, um, to, to sort of energize ourselves and in ways that can be restorative. So out of many, many learnings, those were a few that I sort of jotted down and distilled in, in hearing from our panel. Um, and maybe a question to kick us off, and it comes back to sort of woven themes through all of that, was that concept of vulnerability in love and intimacy and connection. Um, thinking about that concept of how we have to take our guard down, Aaron, as you said, and Monique, what you talked about in terms of sort of unlearning and um, Sylvia and your commentary around overcoming histories of, you know, maybe love not being fully shared or shown, and then the intersections in terms of uh, Sean's comments on, on colonization and that sort of thing. Um, I, I think you've all modeled that vulnerability immeasurably in our panel today. You've clearly done a lot of personal reflecting yourselves to, to kind of process just what you've shared today and how it comes up for you in a relationship and how you're comfortable bringing it forward to an audience like ours today. Um, so I'm curious, like, if you're comfortable sharing, and we can start with whoever is open to it, um, what that looked like for you? Like, what was that process of reflection in getting comfortable with vulnerability um, and getting to the place where you could do it so skillfully today to, to benefit others? Um, and do you still struggle with it at times? And what do you do when that comes up? And, and maybe thinking about the vulnerability hangovers we'll all have after our session today. But... Um, 
yeah, we'll throw that open to the group. I, I can go first to give folks some, some time to think. <laughs> um, so I would say for, for myself, um, some of it is uh, like cultural, like culturally um, specific. So, you know, um, I can say like the way that I grew up. So as I said earlier, I'm mixed. So my, my dad's Irish um, and my mom is, uh, is uh, Nishnabe and Cree uh, and Irish as well. And so for me growing up, the example I kind of got from my mom was, um, was just sort of like that you can have open conversations um, with, with someone that you can trust. And I remember having some like, you know, looking back on like some very like deep, probably uncomfortable conversations. Like I remember like having a conversation on, um, on Mother's Day at some point when my mom was asking me if I was having sex and we were like handing roses out outside of an IGA or something like that. And so, you know, like that, you know, and I was like, it's a little bit of like, be careful what you ask for. Um, because then we then had a conversation about it. But I think about like, there's, there's that piece of how I saw growing up at home. And then culturally, um, a lot of our ceremonies that I, that I've been participating in really the last, um, a little bit over a decade, um, that a lot of those ceremonies are about specifically um, sharing. So everyone's voice matters, everyone's opinion matters. And, you know, I'll use the example, we're, we're not doing it uh, this year because we've, we've do, we're doing some other ceremonies, but we have a yearly ceremony that we call Banakwe Jesus, uh, which it translates to falling leaves moon. And it's this idea in October, it's kind of like the end of our year. It's our year end for Anishinaabe people. And part of that ceremony is you recap your year. And you go around the circle in a, in a teepee or in a lodge, whatever, whatever the case is, and each person talks and each person talks until they're done. <laughs> so like, you know, you can, you can buckle in that it might take a while and, you know, and, but every single person there has the opportunity to talk about what their year was. And honest, honestly, uh, that can be, uh, that can be a range of things. So you can imagine, you know, uh, we also have like a lot of, um, and this is what I was alluding to with my mom is, you know, I was raised to tell the truth, you know, and, and not, uh, truth can be tricky. So you have to be careful with honesty that you're, you're trying to, I think from my perspective, do it in a kind way, but you know, that there's a real power to, to being authentic and telling the truth. And so you can imagine like we've had situations where someone's reflecting on the fact that they've, that they've lost a child over that year or uh, lost a job or lost a parent or lost mentors, like uh, anything can happen over that year. And so everyone has a chance to recap it. So when you see that example illustrated that, you know, this is just how, you know, this is the kind of conversations you have, it, I think, gets you very used to vulnerability and around sharing. Um, where I get the vulnerability hangovers is when I'm in non-Indigenous spaces. And when I say something that is very clearly unwelcome or have is too much <laughs> for non-Indigenous people in the space, right? So particularly ones who have been uh, very influenced by settler colonialism and this notion of having an agenda and like keeping things really like close to the chest. Um, that's the, the, for me, the trick that where vulnerability is tricky. And I've seen that, right? Like I remember that I always tell the story of, I was running a friendship center um, and we had a partnership with uh, a children's aid uh, society for a while mm -hmm. and uh, it didn't work out very well. They weren't really ready for an actual community consultation piece, but we had a, a closing feast and it really, it was myself and uh, uh, the um, president of the, the local sort of like um, uh, Métis council uh, who, who went there. And that was pretty much it because everyone else community members wise didn't feel comfortable going, but we felt it was important because we were representing our organizations to, to be there. And I remember walking in uh, and getting food midway through a story. And I, you know, it was, um, 
this, uh, this, the, the president uh, talking about how he, his foot was hurting a little bit and his daughter uh, was going to school and how he was like really anxious about that and like really frustrated and, and sort of like worried about her and like all of the systemic stuff getting organized. And I remember sitting down and starting to eat and then realizing afterwards what had happened uh, was that one of the uh, children's aid workers had made the mistake of asking him, how are you? And, and when you ask that question in indigenous communities, we will tell you how we are, if, especially if we trust you, like we will, we will give you the full gamut. So he probably went on for about 15 or 20 minutes and I was just sitting there eating and I'm like, this is fine. Um, but I could see like, as the time went on, the look on her face got more and more aghast, you know, and it started, she's like, hmm. and then she's like, and she realized that like, he was going into what, you know, were, were quite intimate details of his family. And I think it was very shocking and surprising for her. Uh, so I think there's an example that I always think about of like, you know, both as when I educate people about communities, like being, being careful, like when people are like, how was your weekend? Right. Like this sort of like under capitalism, we, we don't really want the answers to those questions. We, we want to ask them because we want to be perceived as being polite and, uh, and, and collegial, even though we're not like, even though, you know, and that's true. Like all of us are like that, where you're on the way to a meeting and someone stops you and they're like, how are you? And you're like, well, you know, and the look of horror on their face when you start to actually answer the question. I do that sometimes just to mess with people, by the way, it's harder over zoom. Um, but certainly, uh, certainly I, I will, I will play with people that way a little bit, which probably says a lot about me. Um, but I think there's those pieces around when you're enculturated, that vulnerability is just a piece of what you do because it's also about how you learn. And it's also about being able to admit what you don't know. Right. So culturally speaking, like we talk about how there is so much in our life to learn that there is no one who is an expert on anything really. Um, and, I, and that's the thing that, that sits to me when I think of our knowledge is, you know, um, someone can spend their entire lifetime learning medicines, you know, and they can know thousands upon thousands of medicine. Uh, and there can be someone else who shows up and knows like a thousand and one, <laughs> you know, or shows or knows one more medicine than that person. So there's still something that that person can learn, even if in our communities, they would be held up as the ultimate expert on this. Right. So it's very humbling, I think, uh, to, to really reflect on those things that, uh, we all bring our own experience. We all have our own valuable insights and we all uh, can bring those and, and have a role to play in our communities. Um, and so that's how I think about vulnerability around that is part of our role and part of what we're asked to do. Um, with the balance of it, I think is, you know, that, uh, as I said earlier, Settler colonialism has taken us away from our spirit. So when we talk about our spirit in, in the language, we talk about how the spirit is the thing that feels, um, and, um, you know, and, and is, and is thoughtful about the future. So we think about how, you know, that idea of being able to, to sit with folks and understand how they really feel and be present in that, that's really hard, right? It's really hard to sit and be present with your feelings. Um, so, so that's what we talk about a little bit. Um, so I think about vulnerability is like, you know, what that's being asked to, but also, uh, like carefully, there's a container for that too, right? So I think that's the other thing is like, if we're walking around vulnerable all the time, um, that also can be really hard for all of us. Um, so, so that's where I think about, for me, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to do ceremony and to bring those kind of ceremonies to the conversations I have one-on-one -on -one with people too, right? Because I think of those conversations or ceremony. Um, so when I'm having a conversation with a partner and trying to sort things out, it sucks, right? Like COVID sucks. <laughs> there is no, like I'll say it on record and it's being recorded like COVID sucks. This is, this is awful. Um, it's, it's disrupted things that were already difficult. Um, it sucks. But 
you know, if what comes out of it is people having to be a little bit more authentic and real about their experience in struggling with working at home and managing family demands along with like being on zoom all the time. Like if the things that come out of this can also be positive, then, uh, then in that way, I'm grateful for that uh, as well as for that opportunity for the earth to take a little rest. So that's what I think about. And hopefully I've given enough time for the other panelists to formulate something. <laughs> so you're welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Sean. <laughs> Sylvia, pretty. Thanks. And uh, I always get so much out of Sean's response and wisdom. So I super appreciate um, all of your wisdom. I th when I think about vulnerability, I think um, the first thing that jumps out of me is uh, I like Brene Brown's emphasis on vulnerability and courage and that, that um, aligning of, of those two processes. And I think it's similar, but I think about for me, vulnerability is really stepping into understanding what is my relationship with fear. Um, and I know I, I grappled with this for a long time. I think that, you know, it's rooted in Indigenous wisdom, but it's also just rooted for me in spiritual practice and intuitive practice that, you know, there really is, and Sean mentioned this, which I appreciate, um, you know, there, there really is no conditions on love from the creator. There really is no conditions on love. Um, for us as as human beings and that to me is really it's always in contention with how we've been brought up and how we've learned to be and exist in this world you know Monique talked a, a lot about that as well and so for me this process of facing vulnerability is really challenging all of the ways, um, as I mentioned before, that we've been asked to show up in this world. I know that fear to me shows up as illness. It shows up as self-abuse. It shows up as, you know, the absence of psychological safety. And I, I think it does for a lot of us. And when we can separate um, those experiences and look at it as an outcome of our relationship to fear, it helps me lean into vulnerability. It also helps me see um, as I love talking about the ways in which fear is a perfect ingredient for all of the ways in which systemic oppression um, requires to exist. We need to live in fear in order to perpetuate those forms of oppression. We need to, um, we need to buy in to all of the lies that colonialism has, has told us, as, as Sean has mentioned. You know, that notion of meritocracy, that notion of separateness, all of that requires that we live in immense fear all the time. And so the opposite of that is really looking into, you know, how do I, my vulnerability is my power. And I think my power is my vulnerability because that actively asks me to reassess how much I'm willing to live in that fear. And so I think, you know, to that point, vulnerability is really about revisiting and reframing my relationship with fear. Oh my goodness, Sylvia. Hi, <laughs> 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 Ten Group. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. So, all right. So you, you really have me thinking here about vulnerability um, and what my process looks like, but then, you know, you threw out, um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I want to make sure I get it right. For, you were saying that vulnerability for you is related to how you sit in the face of fear. Is that what you said? Something along those lines, Sylvia? It aligns with my, yeah, it's about my relationship with fear. I okay. have like assessing our relationship with fear and like being able to really face it head on requires vulnerability. 
right? So vulnerability is that ingredient of, of facing a fear. Yes, absolutely. So interestingly, I, I was writing down a couple of things that I wanted to share, but then I, I'm going to go in a completely different direction because you threw this out there. And it's it's hitting home to me because I, as I said, like I'm, I'm a Christian and I've been really um, kind of engaging with my creator. And, and I have found that anytime I feel uneasy, I'm sitting in a place of discomfort, which causes me to be vulnerable, right? And it's so true what you say, like it's, it's having you, like when you are in that, for me, I'm in that moment. It it does have me assess my relationship with fear, and it and it causes me to acknowledge that I'm sitting in a place of fear. Um, and so I'm finding more than ever, I'm saying things like, "But God, I trust you," because it's like it's my way of acknowledging that I'm not in control, and that there's something else that's greater that's in control. Like there's some things that are just beyond my control, and so I think that when I say, "But God, I trust you," it's my way of acknowledging that. I am literally being confronted with fear. I am vulnerable. I don't like the, the, what I'm feeling. I'm uncomfortable with it, but it's okay. Like I, I got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Um, and so I think that, uh, you know, I think uh, Sean had mentioned that for him, vulnerability is, is almost like cultural, like I guess maybe culturally encouraged. And so um, with me, it, it just wasn't like, we didn't talk about it. Same way how we didn't touch. <laughs> we didn't talk about feelings, like forget it. And so I think when I was really young, I learned to write down my feelings. And so I began to journal and I and I carry that to this day. And so I feel as though, um, and maybe my husband doesn't even know this, but I'm actually more vulnerable with my journal <laughs> than I am with my husband um, because my my journal doesn't judge, right? Like it's, it's, I'm, it's just my eyes and that's it. And so I think that's, that's one of the ways I kind of, you know, process my vulnerability is that I'm just real um, about how I'm feeling, where I'm at. And, and I think that's one of the ways that I am attempting to be comfortable in the discomfort of this all. Um, I, it's, I guess when I'm thinking about like my journey to vulnerability, I think first and foremost, um, I had a lot of people be vulnerable with me. Like I, I often had people coming to me with support and letting their guard down so that they could access me for, for conversations. And so that to me, um, I think in a way role modeled that, like I think about, you know, my mom, I've been her support person, the person that she goes to for everything since like grade eight. And so um, I think in, in many ways, um, I, I never had to be vulnerable first. Someone else did it. And then, and I think that that was helpful. Um, I also think about for me, like there, there got to points where like, I mean, my depressive episodes were so bad that for me, like vulnerability was life or death really, where like I needed to make that choice if I wanted to continue to live. Um, and so, um, sometimes like pressure necessitated that. Um, I, I think about, um, I mean, my background is, is in residence life where we have a lot of vulnerable conversations. And so I think that that was something that was coached. Um, I know that like Sterling is on the call and, uh, you know, I used to work for him and he role modeled a lot of vulnerable conversations and reflection and, um, having that role modeled for me was really helpful, um, 
I also, it's sometimes I feel like vulnerability for me is a tool um, in that if I am trying to have a support conversation with someone, for instance, um, by being vulnerable, I feel like I am able to um, help that person along their path. So like to me, sometimes vulnerability truthfully is a, is a means to an end in a way. Um, and I'm like, is this authentic vulnerability? I don't fully know um, if I'm using it as a, as a tool. Um, but I think for me, that's been, been part of that process is what does this accomplish for me? What does this um, result in and how do I benefit from that, I suppose? I am constantly in awe of the knowledge of this group. I'm just sitting here like it's washing over me. Um, thank you all so much for that, for that, your eloquence in those answers. Um, we there. So in navigating your personal and the, the space within you and the space outside of you, um, we have a, a question that came up in the chat. Um, and just in interest of time, I'm thinking maybe um, keeping, keeping answers equally as eloquent, but just this much, this, like a little bit brief. Um, <laughs> so the question or the comment is, um, being cognizant that we're all in different boats. Um, for some of us, this may be a contemplative time while for others, um, while others may have never had less time to think. Um, so Given, uh, so full disclosure, uh, high needs children at home, primary partner at home, and care resources are thin, putting this, putting the commenter firmly in the latter group of having no time to think, how might some of our panelists navigate their active expressions of love and engagement with partners while also making time for their own reflection and development in these circumstances? I'm just going to call out Chris Jackman because, Chris, I feel like you are one of the most conscious parents I have ever met. Um, and Dr. Shafali Sabari writes about conscious parenting. Chris, I'm sure that you've read her book. Uh, you model it so well. I don't know if you want to put the link, if anybody wants to put the link in the chat. Um, so I feel like I'm... I'm talking to the converted. Um, for me, I've, I've learned, uh, I can't speak for all parents, but Aaron just said something recently that this work is a matter of life or death. So I prioritize this work um, because that's the only way I know how to show up as a parent is to be able to show up and, and allow my kids to see this struggle, this vulnerability and uh and to do it in conjunction with them because i wake up and i realize every single day i feel like i'm a really empathetic parent i i pride myself on conscious parenting but none of us know what it's like to parent during covid and so i wake up with that level of humility every day and just say all of it is what it is and it's going to be in the best uh case scenario for our kids as we can model that vulnerability. And I don't know if that really gets to your question, um, but really doing the work is, is, is the parenting, is the showing up for parenting for me. So Monique, I don't know if you have anything to add to that. Yeah, I'm just going to peek to make sure I'm going to answer this correctly. Um, yeah, so I was going to say, uh, again, I don't know if this is going to answer, but I'm just thinking someone wiser than me once said, Monique, you have to, plan everything like you have to be strategic with everything and if and if you're not then 
you're not going to get at least most of what you want to get done, right? Um, and understanding that we are in um, a season of uncertainty and you can plan all you want, you know, <laughs> it, it, it's like things are just happening beyond our control. Um, but I would really encourage, I think anybody, and I'm encouraging myself even as I speak, to be strategic, right? Um, I, my husband and I went out the other day and we went to the movies and there's like nobody in the movie theater, but we went to the movies and um, I kind of just kind of grabbed his arm and keep in mind, my primary love language is not physical touch. So I grabbed his arm, whatever. And I was like, oh my God, this feels so good. And then all of a sudden it's like, I'm like well up on him while I'm watching this movie. And, and I think in that moment, I realized we just aren't touching and connecting in that way, um, the way how we used to. And um, it's because, as you said, there's just no time to think. There's just no there's just no time. Um, and so one of the things that I'm going to be doing, and I've been putting the bug in my husband's ear is booking time off so that him and I can just connect, right? Like I said, October 15th, 16th, this is it, <laughs> like two days, right? Um, so I would just encourage, you know, um, being strategic in that way. Um, but I do recognize that that comes with, um, you know, money and the flexibility and all that good stuff. Something else I want to say as well that, um, being not having time to think, I find so irritating with this season personally. And so um, I as much as I love to be Netflixing for longer periods of time, I am finding in the last like two weeks, I'm actually saying, okay, hon, you can keep watching. I'm going to go read. And I'm finding that reading time is like my time to just settle. And so I'm just doing a little bit of reading. I'll even jot notes down while I'm reading because it's it's helping me process in the bank. And so I think I'm feeding myself in that sense, at least intellectually and emotionally. Um, and so that's what's been helping me. And so I kind of encourage anybody, you know, just to continue to be strategic and maybe sometimes it means change the strategy. Um, I also throw in, I'm not a, I'm going to be upfront. I'm not a parent unless cats count. Um, so, so in terms of the, the time piece, like I, I cannot speak to, to that piece. What I will say though, um, is I think in thinking about it this way, and this is something that we, we talk a lot about in our communities is that what makes healthy communities is healthy families. And what makes healthy families is healthy individuals. So, uh, I think that, um, and this is like an interesting thing about, uh, like uh, culturally for us is we talk about, um, you know, and, and in relationship teachings uh, specifically, we talk about how if you're a parent um, that actually you as a parent and your partner need to come first and the kids need to come second because if your relationship isn't healthy uh, or you're not, you know, prioritizing that to some extent, um, then, then it sort of creates a, an, an unhealthy dynamic in terms of, of that piece, which again, probably is much easier to say. And that's an ideal, I think. And, and I think it's something to keep in mind. Um, but for me, I think it is still that as individuals, we have a responsibility to be healthy, right? So taking the time we need to, to do that, uh, because, you know, uh, and I know this for myself, because um, I've also worked in student affairs and student housing. And so, you know, there were weeks and weeks and weeks where I was not, I had no time off, right? I would work like three weeks straight. Um, like pretty consistently. And, and I know at the end I was not like, I was not a particularly in a good space, right. Because I had taken literally no time for myself over that time period. Um, and so, uh, you know, we have a lot of ceremonies and a lot of things we do specifically to center, uh, your, your growth in your work as an individual and, and sitting with and, and all that kind of stuff that I won't get into now, but I think recognizing that, you know, that's something we've always, we've always seen and always recognized is that, um, 
the individual is, is critically important to the rest of that. So if an individual is not healthy, you're not going to have a healthy family. You're not going to have a healthy nation or clan. You're not going to have a healthy community. So um, doing what you need to do to prioritize that uh, is not selfish. It's about actually uh, equipping yourself so you're able to like fully help people and, and do that piece. And it's hard, right? Because I think that's, uh, it's, it's, not an individualistic sort of piece, but it is that time for reflection, that time for sitting, that time for connecting with creation. Like that's the kind of thing when, you, when you're putting yourself first, I think, um, rather than distracting, because that's also a whole other thing. So, um, so yeah, I would say um, fur babies are also great. And, you know, uh, taking the time with whatever people in your life, because it doesn't, you know, kids are a piece, but then it could also be parents. It could also be family members. It could be nieces and nephews. It could be uh, orniblets. It could be um, fur babies. It could be whatever it is. Right. Um, but again, uh, balancing that I think is also in, important in that context too. Fantastic. Well, thank you to our panelists for, for diving a little bit more on that and mindful that we, uh, had scheduled ourselves in, until three o'clock and, and that some of our audience members might, might need to, to step away. So uh, just o- opening that, that door. And I think we had a, a few closing resources that we wanted to share with folks who attended just in, in case you're kind of seeking additional supports and noting that we did enter into a brave space and talk about lots of vulnerable stuff today. So wanting to give folks avenues to next steps as well. So we'll toss it over to Anita. Yeah, I will be sending out resources to everyone. Uh, um, so please do look out for those. Um, I can also, the last time I tried to put them in the chat, it didn't quite work as well. So I'm going to be sending them out individually. Um, and if anyone has any follow-up questions, please do feel free to reach out to me over the email that you will get the resources uh, from. Um, but I think we, we were we are right on time. Um, so awesome job, panelists. You, you all are so wonderful. And thank you so much for all of your sharing and your courage and your vulnerability um, and your spirit. Like it, it just, it all just shone through. And, and I don't think I speak for myself when I say I am totally in awe of you all. Uh, stay in all of you all. Um, so until next time, I think we can wrap this up. So thank you all and thank you all to our participants for joining us. Take care and stay safe, everyone. Big thanks to everyone who joined and to our panelists. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for joining. Thank you for joining us for episode two of Love in the Time of Corona podcast. Make sure to join for our next episode where we dive deeper into love and connection during the pandemic. Make sure to listen and subscribe to the Centennial College podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and Spotify. Spotify.